AMU. American Military University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Intellectable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Deal. Today, we're talking about leveraging military skills in the corporate world. My guest today is Joel Beam. Joel is the COO of a nonprofit called the SEAL Future Foundation. A former Navy SEAL himself, Joel's focus is helping the SEAL community transition from military service to the civilian world. Joel has spent the last 10 years in public and private companies in key leadership positions and most recently left a technology company where he served as VP of operations with several business units and global responsibilities. Joel, welcome to Electable and thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me on, Gary. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Well, full disclosure to our listening audience, obviously we know each other from uh, past professional lives working together in Las Vegas for the Win and Encore Resorts. So I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast because naturally our universities lean and affection for the military is strong. Approximately 90 to 95% of our student body is uh, either veteran or active duty military personnel. So we're honored to have you on and to talk a little bit about a subject that I know is popular among our students, which is once you transition out of the military, how do you effectively transition into civilian life and specifically into a professional career that is non-military based? So I guess to start at the beginning, I'm curious to know for you, what was your story going into the military? How did you get in? And then how did you make your way into the elite ranks of of the SEAL forces? So I I think like most people who joined the military, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do as a career. I went through high school and uh, I had good, good grades, enjoyed sports. I tried my hand at college for for about a year or so, and just I didn't hit didn't hit the mark. didn't didn't kind of resonate at that time. And I always had a affinity for the military. I always thought it was very exciting. And so after my freshman year of college, I I decided that I'd give the military a shot. And I'd always looked at the special operations community as as something that seemed very interesting, very adventurous. And so for me, you know, joining the military meant giving up a good chunk of my time and my life. And so I wanted to make sure it was a useful time spent well and uh, shopped around the special operations community a bit and landed on the the SEAL community as one that really resonated with me. I think the water is something that can be very frightening for people and uh, myself included. And I wanted to kind of jump head first into you know, kind of the unknown, kind of the most challenging, I guess, community and job that I could see and you know made the decision at 19 that I'd give the SEAL community a shot, go through training. And so I joined and found myself at BUDS, which is our training pipeline, and was not disappointed in the level of effort required to go through that training. So a lot of times you go through, you, you kind of build up an expectation for an event in your head. And then when you go and actually perform that event, you're a little bit let down because maybe it was more than you thought it would be. That was not the case with going through BUDS. I had built up in my head what I thought would be a extreme challenge and an extreme adventure. And I was not disappointed by that thought as I entered the the training pipeline and got exposure to just how far you can push yourself if you just refuse to give in to the desire to quit. And so that kind of started my journey. I think similar to a lot of people, a little bit lost in where I wanted to go, saw the military as an opportunity to fill maybe some of that lack of direction with some purpose. 
and found myself in the SEAL community, which I absolutely loved every second of it. Certainly, you know, paid the man substantially for the time served there, but I really enjoyed my time. Excellent. First, I should say thank you for your, your service. And, uh, you know, we, we appreciate your commitment and your contribution to our, our nation's security and our military. I'm curious, and speaking as someone without a military background, I've seen movies and documentaries on the BUDS training program. And, and so that was something I definitely wanted to ask you a little bit about is people have a perspective of how difficult it is. And, and I remember reading something to the effect of, you know, how, how many people go in versus how many people are approved coming out as, you know, vetted Navy SEAL. Is it every bit as difficult as it seems on the on the outside? So I don't think movies or books can ever do justice to the amount of stress and the amount of physical pain and exhaustion that takes place in, in SEAL training. I think you get a, to see a glimpse of, you know, from an outsider's perspective of what that looks like, but Failing to be there in person, you you don't get to have the sand in your eyes nonstop for the entire <laughs> session of training for the six to eight months, however long you're there for. Uh, you don't get to carry that boat over your head and feel your arms kind of be exhausted or, or whatever that looks like. So I think it does a good job of showing the activities that you kind of go through. But unless you're there in person experiencing the full benefit of what the program kind of entails, I think it does a little bit of a disservice in that people see the activities and they say, well, I could probably do that. But doing that for hours and consecutive days really takes a mental and, and psychological toll on people's ability to grind through and, and have the grit to push through hour after hour and day after day. So I, I do think it gives a good perspective of the activities, but I don't think it represents the level of effort or the level of commitment that's required to actually endure or get through some of those some of those blocks of training. Sure. It's hard to imagine how difficult it must be. Just watching it looks painful. So I uh, I have tremendous respect for, for anybody who makes it through that. So how long were you in the service in the Navy before transitioning? Was there a period of time or was there an immediate decision to go directly into the SEAL route? So I went directly into SEAL training. At that time, they had a, a program where you could try out specifically for BUDS training. That did require that I obviously went through boot camp and I went through kind of the initial school set. So I was a corpsman by training and I went to Great Lakes for for that. And I probably spent a year going through that training and waiting to class up for BUDS. And so I never really got any, and I kind of regret it, I, I never really got any experience or exposure with the broader military or the or the navy in general i kind of was after boot camp carved out into this pipeline where all these sailors were in a position to go into these special programs and so it was a a little bit of a unique experience in that the pipeline wasn't really concerned with formal military structure as much as it was getting guys ready for their programs and so my days didn't involve learning about military history or, or being formally part of an uh, organization where there's that rank structure. I, I really was with a just kind of hodgepodge group of guys, about 35 of us, that would wake up three times a week at two in the morning to do workouts and then continue those workouts the entirety of the day and spend about three to four months just doing that exclusively before I 
what's called classed up with a buds class. So I went directly in. That path was a little bit, you know, lengthy as you kind of go through the process and and wait for a class. But I went specifically into to be a Navy SEAL. Absolutely. Well, I can imagine it's something you you have to take a lot of time to prepare for, just to be mentally and physically equipped to to get through the training and and hopefully, obviously, successful. What was and I I realize we're here to talk about the transition into civilian life, but I it's fascinating to me because I think that our elite special operations military personnel, specifically the SEALs, are venerated as probably the closest thing we have to real life superheroes, you know, in terms of their training and and abilities. And and so is there anything you can tell us about the work that you did? I recognize that some of it may be classified or that you may be unable to talk about it in terms of missions, but what's it like once you get through that and and you're you're a Navy SEAL and now you're, you know, on the payroll doing this work? What's a day in the in the world of a Navy SEAL like? So it's not like the movies maybe portrayed or, or some movies, I think the most rewarding part of being in the community is the guys that are part of it. And so a day in the life could mean a, a number of different things. We spend a tremendous amount of time training and that's you know, across the U.S. Or, or even abroad. So we're always out, always working. The days are, are usually pretty long. I'd say during blocks of training, 18-hour days are not unrealistic or not uncommon. And uh, that you know, obviously the goal there is to perfect the craft. And in the SEAL community, we, we do just about everything. And so that broad kind of scope of work requires an immense amount of, of training. And so a lot of the time is spent training and, until you get to go and deploy. And then on deployments, I think similar to, to most of the, the military community, we're then targeted with specific mission sets that are meaningful to the nation. And you know, I think that means different types of missions in different theaters. And so without giving specifics, you know, a day in the life as an operator overseas when you're actually doing the work that people see in the movies is waking up, you know, probably around four o'clock in the afternoon, looking for the next kind of intel or mission set that has been identified and then preparing for that mission and then doing those raids or whatever that looks like in the middle of the night while everybody else is sleeping and you know, really kind of what you would expect that job to entail and and then coming home and you know going to bed and working out and and waking up and doing it again so the day in the life is anything but but typical i think as you get into you know deployments it becomes a little bit more predictable and the mission set gets narrowed but as you prepare and as you train that mission set is is very very broad and so the, the days um, are fairly unique and the training is, is always changing as tactics change. So it's a very rewarding experience because you rarely do the same thing twice. And the things that you do twice, so assaults or things that are a little bit more probably common in the eyes of society about what we do, those things progressively get harder and harder and harder. So there's never a day where you've, you've succeeded. There's only days where you can learn how to do something a little bit more precisely or perfectly. Sure. You mentioned waking up in the afternoon and it just occurred to me maybe something that I just hadn't thought about, but is it fair to assume then that most of the missions and, and the work is done at night for reasons of surprise or cover of darkness? And I, I think about, you know, obviously the vast majority of the general public is unaware of probably the vast majority of work that the SEALs do for reasons of confidentiality and secrecy. But 
I'm thinking about, you know, one of the most famous recent missions, which of course was the Osama bin Laden raid, which was done at night by SEAL Team 6. So I'm just curious, is that pretty typical that most of your work is done nocturnally? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think things change and and the mission set changes as well. So geography or the territory that you're operating in kind of dictates what what makes the most sense. Oftentimes there are uh, national level agreements on when, you know, things can happen. But from my experience, when I was in the teams, we did almost everything exclusively at night. And, you know, the reasons there are pretty straightforward. It's a lot easier to have freedom of movement if everyone's asleep. Um, and, and so we did everything, you know, primarily at night. I think as, as we've broadened our geographies, things have changed and the mission, mission set has changed a bit, but, you know, typically we want to take every advantage that we can going into a, an operation. And that usually includes working at night if at all possible. So pivoting to the post-military life and, and your experience, I guess, how long did you spend in the service in total? And, and when did you decide that the time was right to make your exit and, and transition? I spent just under 10 years in the teams. I ended up sustaining some injuries and and really was not going to be able to fulfill the operator role in a meaningful way. I, I could do some operations, kind of back desk work and be connected with the community, but was not going to be able to serve in a capacity that I that I wanted to, to serve in alongside the guys and my brothers that were fighting. And so at that time, I decided it was probably a better use of my time, although painful to do so to separate out of the community and focus more on the on the less abusive physically world of the civilian of the civilian side. So, you know, definitely did not leave with anything but an absolutely phenomenal time in the teams and a little bit of or a lot of heartache in making that decision, but um, really enjoyed my time while I was in and really proud of the time that I served. Excellent. Is is because you mentioned injury and I'm just curious to know, is that a very common reason that SEALs or, or personnel at that level will retire and transition to civilian life, or is it more so just a desire to, to see something new. I'm just curious to know if that's a, a pretty frequent thing that happens. It is. It, the training in and of itself, I mean, even going through BUDS, guys will come out with, you know, lifetime injuries because it, it's just brutal training. And then from there, you add on additional, just incredibly demanding training where the probability of getting injured, whether that's substantially or just repeated small injuries is just, it's almost a certainty. And so about the 10-year mark, you start seeing a high proportion of guys who've, who've got to make some decisions because they're physically finding that their bodies are giving up, maybe not their will or maybe not their, their spirit, but their bodies are just, they've taken, they've taken abuse. And then layering in, guys have been on multiple deployments, a lot of blast injuries. It's a, it's a decision that people have to kind of make Personally, sometimes it get made it gets made for them through the kind of med med board and retirement process. But I'd say at ten years, everyone takes kind of a hard look, as I think most military members do, and say, is it worth the investment for the next ten years? And if guys are getting out from the SEAL community at ten years, there's I'd say twenty five percent that do so because they've enjoyed their time in the community and they want to explore other opportunities. And I would say probably the rest have some other kind of motivator. Whether that's family that's uh, becoming a priority for them and, and having a family and SEAL teams is absolutely 
incredibly difficult. I'm, I know a few that have been successful in doing that, but it is just a few. And then a lot of those individuals have injuries that are kind of forcing a conversation because if they forecast out, hey, what does the next 10 years look like if I'm already broken to this degree at 10 and I'm going to get another you know, five, seven, 10 deployments under my belt, is it worth kind of the, the cost I'm going to pay from a bodily harm perspective? So, uh, you know, I, I think it kind of goes one of two ways. There's either the body's making the decision for you or a handful of, of individuals, you know, have other thoughts that may lead them to the decision to exit the community. Sure. I, I could understand that must be a tremendous sacrifice and, and a hard decision to make. So when you eventually decided after 10 years to make your exit, what did your immediate transition to civilian life look like? What was your first job post-military? I, I can imagine someone who, such as yourself with a tremendous skill set, but that is perhaps not as well adapted to uh, <laughs> the ordinary office job nine to five as it is to what you were doing, you know, in the service and interested to see, you know, how, how did that pan out for you? How did you make that transition? So that the transition it was incredibly difficult. There's nothing like the SEAL community in the corporate space. In fact, a lot of ways, what is meaningful in the corporate space is exactly the opposite of what is meaningful in the SEAL community. And so it's a very difficult transition in a lot of ways. I, I very much struggled with that transition. There's not an easy way to translate the experience that you have in the SEAL teams into something that the corporate side can understand. And so my first job when I got out was actually doing anti-piracy work off of the coast of Somalia. And that was specifically because I was a former Navy SEAL and we had a, re a relationship with the Department of State through uh, a Navy SEAL loan company to do this anti-piracy work. And so I kind of fell into probably a, a situation that a lot of veterans fall into, which is uh, what, I don't know how to make the transition. And so this is kind of familiar to me. Let me pay the bills and let me do this work. And so I fell into that same opportunity and it was great. I had a great time, got to you know, work with some of my, my former friends in a totally different world, um, but still very much isolated from the broader corporate experience. I don't know if I count that specifically as my first kind of transition job because it was so similar and it was so unique that I don't think many companies even know what to do with that experience. I, my first real corporate experience, Gary, and I think you you saw me in action here was at the Wynn and Encore where I eventually got brought on to work with Steve Wynn directly and through that relationship was asked to help build out his his security team. And that was really the first time I I really got to experience corporate the corporate world and, and everything that comes along with it. And I think and you and I had had various conversations along that path of of how things worked and why they worked and trying to understand how to improve things and how to translate our experience into things that could create meaningful impact and meaningful change within that organization. But I can tell you from my point of view, what was always just astonishing to me was in the SEAL community, you have this united focus towards accomplishing a goal and everybody's held accountable to their ability to achieve that goal. Are they going to support it or they're either going to, or, or they're not going to support it. They're going to add value or they're not. And people are very much motivated by their own reputations to be 
an amazing contributor to the team mission. And when I got into the corporate space and kind of looked around and I saw the absence of this sense of purpose and the sense of mission and this lack of motivation to be amazing at the job at, at hand, it was, it was, I think the first wake up call to me that I had some relevance in my experience in the SEAL teams that the corporate space needed because what the corporate space lacked was the clarity of focus and what good look like, what mission we were trying to accomplish. And then the why, the motivation for why get up and push harder today than you did yesterday. What's keeping you from being amazing and why settle for mediocre? And I looked at my SEAL experience and I said, well, this is the world that I came from was only guys who woke up every day with the intention of being better than they were the previous day and with the intention of pushing their peers harder than they did the previous day to make the team better. And it was such an eye-opening experience, very shocking to me, but really kind of the start of my journey of trying to translate what in my military experience had relevance in the corporate space and how do I unpack that experience and speak to it in a way that the corporate audience can understand. Because I think part of the challenge that veterans face is that we have this unique experience in the military. And yeah, there's pros and cons of that experience and, and not everything in that is is amazing. But what is very unique when compared to the corporate side is that there is this overwhelmingly clear sense of purpose and sense of mission and an individual's role within that that makes the machine run well. And I think the challenge a lot of times is that veterans enter the corporate workspace looking at things through that lens, not fully understanding that people that have not served in the military have no idea that things can maybe run a little bit more efficiently or maybe be united a little bit tighter. And so there's there's that translation gap that I think I struggle with, certainly, but I think other veterans struggle with as well, which is how do I help these organizations see what they don't know because they just never experienced it? So another long-winded answer, but that was my my final first step into the corporate space was the win at Encore, and um, you know really an eye opening experience and the start of my kind of own personal journey of unpacking what was relevant in my military experience and how I apply that in the corporate space. Absolutely, I, I think you touched on a lot of great points that I I, I want to uh, parse a little bit further, and and I think that's part of what made us more than just coworkers but friends that we share some of that sentiment, even though I. I didn't have the the privilege of military experience. We've been speaking with former Navy SEAL Joel Beam about his experience in the military and transition out of the military into civilian life. We'll be right back after a short break. Today's corporate world requires talented professionals who quickly rise to meet business needs on a global scale. At American Military University, we'll teach you how to meet the needs of domestic or international businesses. Take the next step. Apply online at amuonline.com. And we're back. Today, we're speaking with former Navy SEAL Joel Beam about his military experience and transition out of the military into civilian life. So when we left off, Joel, we were talking about your sense of the civilian corporate business world after leaving the military and how 
disenchanting some of the, the perceptive lack of motivation can be from those around you. And, and I can imagine it's even more so coming from your past experience as you know part of an elite team where everyone is laser focused on the mission and, and 100% committed. Um, again, I, I don't share that particular background, um, but I certainly can relate. And again, I think this is part of what made us friends while we worked together at the Win and Encore in Las Vegas is we both share that attitude of maximizing our productivity and our contribution. And I recently wrote a set of articles on uh, moving with a sense of urgency and, and trying to, again, optimize the impact that we have on our lives and our goals every day and how frustrating it can be when those around you uh, upon whom you know you rely, at least to some extent, don't share that same sense of urgency. So how what lessons did you learn in the process in terms of um, was it a, an issue of, of translation, of communication, of, of tact uh, to try to get the message across? Or did it require adaptation on your part to just accept some, some status quo that might not be idealistic or, or representative of what you were used to in your previous career? Well, that's a great question. So I think my response is that it's a little bit of everything. I, I refuse to accept the status quo in anything because... To me, that that's giving up. I I'd say, for me, the most important thing for me to understand as I've transitioned and as I've found success in the corporate side, is adaptation. And again, speaking to the military audience and the veteran community, we're I think very used to adapting. Whether that's you know your initial experience in boot camp or your training pipelines or going overseas, whatever that looks like, you've been presented with the absolute need to change how you act and how you think because circumstance dictate that. And sometimes, and and I'll throw myself in this camp, we don't see that need to adapt as we enter the corporate space, and that's those blinders are. It can be damaging. And I'll give you a couple of examples to maybe help solidify the point. So when I was in the SEAL teams, I was exposed to who I feel were, were some of the best leaders I've ever I've ever worked with. They were passionate. They were smart. They were articulate. They understood what needed to be done and how to do it. They put their, their team before themselves. They gave people second chances, third chances to do the right thing or make the right choice or learn the lesson that they needed to. And I had in my mind, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can picture a leader like that in the military where you say, this, this is a leader. And I had the same lens as I approached the corporate space. And I can tell you that that's the wrong lens to look through. Again, if you kind of circle back to the earlier point of the corporate space has not been exposed to our experience as veterans. And so they have no idea that's what leadership that's how good leadership can be. They're used to exactly what leadership is in their corporate experience and in their companies. And in a lot of ways, that leadership style is not the way we think leadership should be demonstrated. And so the adaptation comes into play when you say, I know what I want to be as a leader. But if you just apply that methodology or that framework into the corporate setting, you may not be successful and you may not be successful, not because you're a bad leader. I think you're going to be a phenomenal leader. Your team's going to follow you, but your organization may not see that as leadership. And I think for those veterans who have transitioned and are in the corporate space, 
you've probably been exposed to leaders who you're looking at and you're saying, how in the world are you leading whatever this looks like? Or how did you get promoted? Or how are you being rewarded? Because the way that you handle business and your team and your uh, how you show up to work is not the way I view leadership. And I think if you can see that distinction, then you're ready for the next part of this equation, which is, so how do you show up to work understanding that your lens that you're seeing leadership through is different? How do you pull in those key characteristics that you find a ton of value in, but also how do you see and how do you recognize what the organization rewards in their leaders? Because all you have to do is look around and say, person X, Y, and Z is getting promoted or they have been promoted or they're in senior roles and how they behave is not how I behave, but what is it that the organization is valuing in them that they're getting this promotion, getting this recognition? And that's where, again, using just leadership as an example, that's where as you show up to work, you have to be able to see, I've got to translate what I think leadership needs to be in light of what organizations want it to look like and not just copy and paste, hey, I know what a good leader is. I've been led by them. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to blaze a new trail here and I'm going to be the best leader that this company has ever seen and they don't know what it looks like yet. If you find yourself in that boat, then I'd say be careful because you're alone in that journey. And anytime you're alone in an organization, you have more risk than others. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't take that on. And I have certainly taken that on and I've been the lone wolf and I've pushed and I've paid the price substantially for that exposure of going against the grain and trying to replicate what I knew to be true in the SEAL teams in the corporate space versus taking what I knew to be true, being patient and understanding what is true in the corporate side, and then informing a strategy for how I would lead in light of both of those things where it wasn't an all for nothing. I don't have to be sold out and do everything exactly how the SEAL teams worked or how they operated. And I didn't have to do everything that the corporate side did or how they operated or what they valued. It was that strategic evaluation of what elements from the SEAL community, from SEAL leaders that I valued and respected, could I pull in and plug into a corporate setting that would allow me to be successful in the corporate setting? And I think the most clear example that I can give is as a new as a new leader in the corporate space, I like to look out for my team and I would probably do so at the detriment of my own reputation because that's what a good leader did, in my opinion, they they stood up for the failures of their team. If that team member was trying, was giving effort, was had a mistake or made a mistake, but maybe maybe needed another chance to learn and grow from it. And I applied that same methodology in the corporate space. And the reality is that that's not how leaders work there. They would look, they'd see a mistake, they'd look at the politics, they'd look at what their boss wanted, and they make a decision based on their career not about how they wanted to be seen as a leader. And for me, the realization was you've got to be able and I've got to be able to blend both. I've got to be able to see my decisions in light of the career and the reputation I'm building at the corporate level, as well as the tension of the leader that I want to be because I know some key leadership traits to be true to me. And so that adaptation of you've got this experience in the military that is unique to you, and you're going to jump into a corporate setting that has no idea what good looks like in that regard. And leadership, I think, is key where the military has the corporate side maybe outpaced. But that copy and paste effort is dangerous because you're trying to show somebody something that they've never experienced. And so everything that you're doing is new. 
and new things in the corporate setting can be scary or it can go kind of against the grain. And again, I think my point in all of this is saying as you transition from the military, as you're entering the workforce as a new, as a veteran, you've got to consider that your new peer group has no idea of your experience or what good looks like or what is valued there or what is better than the corporate space. They have no clue what that is or what it looks like. And so to try and copy and paste things that work for you or things you valued in the corporate space blindly, you're probably going to have a rough a rough go as people question, as people introduce the corporate values into your kind of lane or your your how you show up to work. And so I think the biggest kind of piece of advice that I can offer, at least at least with the leadership anyway, is that you've got to be open to adapting your entire experience to your new environment, much like you would change how you show up to work or how you, you know, approach your day to day. If you're deployed overseas somewhere, you're in a different land, different culture, different, different set of risks. It's the same thing in the corporate space. So I would be open and aware as you enter that new job or your first time job that you're, you're in a new deployment and that space is ambiguous. It's certainly far different than what you're used to. And so your spider sense should be on alert. What is different? What is similar? What do I need to translate so that I can work in this new environment that's completely foreign to me as effectively as possible? So again, I think adaptation is is the key to success in a lot of ways. Perfect. So one of the things you mentioned in your response was leadership. And, and I'm curious to ask about this because we teach this as part of the business school curriculum, the different types of leadership, the different sources of leadership power. And one of those sources is academically known as legitimate power or power by virtue of one's authority or title. And of course, this is something that the military is famous for embracing and the idea that a major is a major, colonel's a colonel, and, and whether or not you like that person is sort of tangential to the point. You will you know, give them, afford them the respect of the rank that they've earned, um, notwithstanding their character attributes or, you know, whether they've, so to speak, earned it, you know, from you from a relationship standpoint. That's contrasted with, of course, the corporate business world where we still have lines of authority. And, you know, in the security team at the Win and Encore, I reported directly to you as, as an assistant director of security. And in fairness, I would have followed you regardless of whether or not that power structure was there because I respected you as someone who, you know, as you noted, was selfless and, and you cared about your team and embodied the values that I would have embodied myself as a leader in the same position. But in the corporate world, we have the situation where there aren't such deep consequences for insubordination. I mean, there could be. Um, you could lose your job and, and there could be discipline. But I would argue that the military has a much more strict sort of attitude toward that kind of hierarchy. So I'm curious to know your thoughts in terms of having seen both sides of that in a way that, you know, that I have not and and no one really that's that's not been in both the military and the civilian world um, can speak to. Is there value in that sort of structure, the way the military does it, that in other words, would corporate America be better off if we adopted more of a strict, you know, I'm in charge here and you'll respect me regardless of whether or not you like me? Or is it better that we have this environment where you kind of have to earn your merits and um, your power is derived more from the relationships you build with your subordinates than from the rank that you have acquired in your position? Yeah, that's another very good question. So I think the military has got a rank structure, but similar to any other leader, 
people will follow you because you have a title or people will follow you because they want to follow you. And the same thing is true in the military. And, you know, I think as I look at the most effective leaders that I knew in the military had nothing to do with rank. They were people that you would willingly follow for the right reasons of, you know, intelligence, of decision making, of prioritization, of kind of selfless leadership, of decentralized authority, all of those key characteristics. A good leader is a good leader, regardless of the title that's kind of bestowed upon them. And the same thing is true in the corporate space. There's the same structure in terms of of titles in the corporate space, albeit less consequential to your point if you if you fail to maybe adhere to to guidance there. But you know, on the same side of the equation, you can get very you can get fired very quickly in the corporate side, and you can't really get fired very quickly on the military side. You really got to work at it. But I think where I'm going with this is for veterans as we are looking to plug into the corporate setting of leadership. Those same characteristics that you value in leaders in the military will be present in some of the leaders you see in the corporate space. What I think is a detriment to veterans and something that I picked up along the way is in the military, you do have this final word factor because of rank in that if your sergeant says that you're going to do something and you don't want to do it, well, you're going to do it regardless because because of that rank. And and a lot of times that perception of of structure carries over into the corporate space and it can be to our, our detriment. And what I mean by that is it's a much more free environment in the corporate setting to challenge your supervisor. I mean, you, you can't do that disrespectfully and you can't do that. Um, in a way that demeans their leadership, but you also don't just have to follow what's being said because someone's got a title that's above yours. And that took me years to figure out. And it's something that I think even now I struggle with. I'm still learning the lessons on, which is these are your peers in the corporate setting. They do have a a title that that puts them in charge potentially, but at the end of the day on the corporate side, you're much more free to question the logic behind a direction if it doesn't make sense. And you're much more free to open up a dialogue around differing paths to resolution if you see that the one being presented for you is is not maybe the most logical, efficient, or effective. And so I think we carry with us with some baggage as we enter the corporate space and that that really wasn't a, a real option for us I mean, it was there to some degree, but in others it wasn't. But what I've seen myself and other veterans struggle with is they have different opinions of their managers and they don't speak up and open up this kind of candid conversation at a peer level with their managers because they have they have not adapted the way they view leadership from the military setting into the corporate setting. And so they just continue to plug away when they could open the door for some very relevant conversations around the path forward or around a decision if they were free in their minds to have that discussion. And I think one of the biggest lessons learned for me anyway is that if presented respectfully, if presented with open ears and an open mind and also taking into consideration who you're speaking with, some some leaders or some people in positions of, of authority are, are not effective. And so those are more challenging conversations. But the point I'm trying to make is the informal 
space in the corporate setting when compared to the the military setting of rank can be used to our advantage where we can open up those conversations and we can have those more transparent back and forth disagreements on the path forward. And, and that's an option that I hope all veterans and all military members thinking about transitioning into the corporate space know that they have. It's not just do what I say because of my rank. It is let's do what the smartest thing here is. Let's do the most effective and efficient solution. And if it happens to be different than your manager's, then you're free to have a conversation there again, as long as it's respectful. Um, To get back to your kind of question more pointedly, again, I don't think the military rank structure affords any luxury over the the corporate side. I think both have their own, own issues when it comes to organizing people. And those issues fundamentally boil down to, is that leader somebody that inspires other people to follow them? Or is that leader somebody who relies on their position to get the work done? And in both camps, we have been exposed to great leaders. And in both camps, we've been exposed to poor leaders. The difference is on the corporate setting, again, you have that free or more free avenue to question, to suggest, to open up a conversation around the path forward. And again, as veterans that option's available to us, and I'd encourage everyone to exercise it. Perfect. I didn't know this before we had scheduled and coordinated this podcast, but as I mentioned at the onset in the introduction, you have a nonprofit. You are the COO of a nonprofit called the SEAL Future Foundation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and, and what you do? Because I imagine that's some really rewarding and interesting work. Absolutely. So the SEAL Future Foundation exists to help Navy SEALs make the transition from the military into the corporate sector. And I think the struggles that are faced by SEALs as they transition is this, the same ones that, that other vet, veterans face. It's this lack of clarity in terms of what the corporate setting looks like, what the job exposure or the job opportunities are. It at its core exists to help guys continue to find a sense of purpose and passion outside of the community in the corporate space And we do that through a couple of core pillars. I think one is the career, which we've talked a little bit about here. We have a a broad network of veteran-friendly, SEAL-friendly organizations and civilian counterparts that find value in our experience. And so we help plug the gaps there for guys and make those introductions. We do so in health as many veterans, mental and physical injuries can present real barriers to finding success in the corporate space. And so we offer a number of programs there to make sure guys are getting the treatment that they need. And a lot of times it's it's this groundbreaking treatment that we're introducing guys to because the scars of, of war are not well understood. And so we're, we're very much on the front end and the more innovative side of trying to find ways to treat TBI, PTSD, other kind of lesser researched or lesser known health challenges for guys. So we were there to help kind of catch them and, and plug them with the right resources. Uh, we've got the same from a community or a, uh, an education standpoint. So we have much like I think AMU and that, and that system has programs to help veterans find the right degree path. And we've got partnerships with a couple of universities to get guys plugged in. And then the last one is just the sense of community. And I'm sure, and, and I'm hopeful that, that the veterans listening have that kind of similar sense of community outside of their military experience because 
it is such a unique experience and the corporate side and the civilian side really struggle to provide the ecosystem of support that we need. And so we provide via our foundation, a national community where we've got different chapters, so to speak, we call them FOBs, forward operating bases in these, in these um, cities where we partner with civilian leaders who are again, sympathetic to the cause, understand the value in our experience and, and we plug guys in as they transition into these cities, into these fobs where they can make those connections, build a network, and then get plugged into the corporate side. So at its heart, we're here to ensure that that the guys coming out of the teams don't struggle to translate their experience, don't struggle in the adaptation of their experience and translating that to the corporate side, but kind of help walk them through that. So it's something that I've been very passionate about. I've been involved in this space for a number of years. And in fact, it was on my roadmap, the when I exited the military in 10 years ago, I had on my kind of personal career journey that by the time my cohort of operators was retiring, the guys that I would went to war with, that I would be in a position to help them transition smoother than I did, more effectively than I did. So I'm very rewarded and, and very grateful to be part of the organization and, and really feel that the work that we're doing is changing and saving lives. And so it's a very great organization to be around and be familiar with. If anyone's interested, it's sealff.org. And you can go and kind of look at what we do. We have a number of events that uh, people can participate in all around the nation. And they're always fun events if people like to shoot and like to, to kind of get out on the range. We do a lot of this, that stuff as well. So um, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on today's program and, and talk a little bit about the foundation as well. That's perfect. I know I speak for uh, American military and American public university when I say that, you know, we, we certainly support your mission. It sounds like you're doing really important work there. And, and we're really grateful for uh, people like you that are helping with this transition that, you know, as we've been discussing, can be really difficult for some. So uh, it needs to be done. And, and it's, uh, it's great that you're doing it. Thank you for sharing your expertise and perspectives on these topics, Joel. And thanks for joining me today for this episode of Intellectable. Thank you very much, Gary. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. You can learn more about these topics and more by visiting the various APUS-sponsored blogs. Be well and stay safe, everyone. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.